You're listening to Desi Women Diaspora, Episode 8. For 30 years, Saki has worked to end domestic violence against South Asian women. For urgent support, call their helpline at 212-868-6741 or visit them at sakhi.org. Welcome, listeners, to Desi Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. I'm your host, Mala Kumar. My guest today is Manu Janeja, an employment and marketing expert at GSK. Thank you so much for joining me today. Um, You've got an interesting story for this podcast because, well, a lot of the people that we're speaking to have moved around to different countries during their childhood. You actually made a couple of moves back and forth between the United States and India. Well, I should say India and the United States. So can you kind of <laughs> give me an overview of how that happened and why did that come to be? Yeah. So um, I grew up in India. I was um, living in India up until I was um, 29 years old. And the first time I moved from India to the U.S. was when I got married to um, to my husband, Asim, who had been living here. So he was in Los Angeles and we got married and I decided to quit my job in India and come and live with him. So that was my first time. And I was here on a dependent visa back then. So I couldn't really work in the United States, but we lived here for about nine months. And... Um, you know, then decided to go back just because I couldn't work and I really wanted to. Um, so that's the reason we moved back to India. And um, I think at that time we thought we we're moving back to good. We, you know, closed down everything. So we just thought we'd go back home and live where our parents live and um, some of our siblings, not all. And we would have a good life in India. Um a few years later, you know, I obviously started working back home in India and in the company that I was working, I was offered an opportunity to come back to the United States and do a one-year stint here. So that was our second move. And uh, at that time, we just thought it's going to be temporary. I moved from um, Gurgaon, which is a suburb to New Delhi, which is the capital, and moved to Philadelphia for a year thinking I'll do this um, as an interesting job and then go back again to India. But a year down the line, um, you know, I had really started to grow to love my job. And my husband visited me over the holiday season and we spent a good time in uh, Philadelphia, you know, first time kind of being in the snow and in the winters. And I think both of us just fell in love with the city and the experiences we were having and um, just decided to stay. So my husband then um, decided to move for me. So it was kind of backwards. First I moved for him and then he moved for me. And again, I think because this was our second time around, we knew that we probably would not do another time. And it was time for us to start family as well. So at that time, we closed down everything in India <laughs> and moved here thinking that this is where our life would be. So we've been now living in Philadelphia um, for about eight years. It's hmm. funny <laughs> that the move that you thought would be permanent to the States ended up being temporary and the temporary move <laughs> made to the States ended up being, at least for now, permanent. 
Yeah. Yes, it is funny how things turned out. <laughs> yeah, definitely. I think I, the lesson that I learned from there is never say never. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so what was it? What was it like growing up in India? Did you feel like at some point you'd move to the states or to a different country, or was that not really on the horizon? Um, I should say not really. I think my early childhood was very much. Um, we just had a lot of family around us, and. You know, as a child, I was just happy where I was. I never thought about the bigger world we lived in. Um, my dad had a job and my mom was a housewife and she was always around for us. And my dad, my dad's job was transferable in that we had to move every two years or so. And I really enjoyed that, just going from one place to another. Um, I never thought about going out of the country, but I always liked to go to new places um, just because that's how I grew up um, and then kind of packing and moving and you know changing your life and all of the support that goes around it and finding establishing a new life in another city or another place was kind of normal to me so I would say that I don't know if I ever thought about it but <laughs> in hindsight if it even ever occurred to me I would have always thought of my, myself as someone who would move around a lot so you mentioned that growing up, you moved quite a bit because your dad was an executive at a company, a, a big company in India. Um, what were some of the cities that you moved to during your childhood? Um, for the most part, we were in the north part of India. So starting from New Delhi and um, the cities around. So um, there's a city called Hisar. We went to Gurgaon, which is another suburb. We went to Rajasthan and lived in Jaipur for a few years. We went to <laughs> Madhya Pradesh. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, Jaipur. Ah, that's always a top destination for those white backpackers. I don't know what it is. <laughs> yeah. Um, we lived in a place called Gwalior. Uh, I don't know if you've heard about that. It's, um, it's a town in Madhya Pradesh. So it was a little further down, not necessarily the North India, but more kind of the middle part. Mm -hmm. And that I would say was the most distant location for us, um, you know, from from where we belong, um, mm. which is Haryana. So my dad and mom are originally from Haryana, which is the state closest to New Delhi. Mm -hmm. And we kind of like, if you take that as kind of the main point and then kind of draw distances from there, we just moved around to a lot of towns and cities around that every two or two years or so. Or we also lived in Chandigarh, which I would say is probably, was probably my favorite city to live in. Why was that? Uh, Chandigarh is very different because it's clean. It had a lot of parks and playgrounds. I just think architecturally it's very unique than how well organized it is. Um, it just has a very different culture as well. Very nice, gentle, you know, very friendly people as well. And I think it was the first time for us, uh, you know, as our family moving a little bit towards Punjab. We were mostly in Haryana and New Delhi, so I think the culture is a little bit different. Um, so I really liked it. I think that was also the time that I started to enjoy my mom's kitty parties. <laughs> she started to go to these kitty parties. With <laughs> what were those? And <laughs> is that what it sounds like? They get a bunch of kittens together and then have fun, like play around? Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> oh, my God. You haven't heard kitty parties? I don't know what they no. call them in America, but essentially it's a bunch of women coming together to play tambola or play cards. Like a like a game night kind of thing? 
Yeah, like a game night, um, but an organized one. Mm-hmm. And the the aim of that was twofold. So a lot of women, you know, back in the day were housewives and they would be saving money that they would be receiving from their husbands for, you know, obviously they'd be spending that money on, you know, household things and whatnot. But a lot of them would also save that money and try to hide it also from their husbands. Mm-hmm. And that this was just another way to invest your saved money into something and then just get as a gift. So for example, you could join a kitty party, put in, let's say a thousand bucks um, every month, and then your name is put into, you know, like a drawing lot or something. And every month a name is drawn out. Whoever's name is drawn out, they, well, they get to host the next kitty party, but they also get to receive the cumulative funds from the entire party. So meaning if there are 12 people and everyone gave a thousand bucks, that person gets the 12,000 for that month. Okay. Does that make sense? Yeah. So it's kind of like so a raffle, but then you have to host the party. Yes. So, and it's a surprise thing for the, for the person who wins it, you know, anytime my mom would win it, she would be so thrilled that <laughs> she was the next host and she would always have like a list of things that she would buy or get for us and for mm-hmm. herself when she won that. So it was just, yeah, really fun. And then they would cook really delicious and different cuisines or meals that they hadn't tried before, which was another fun thing to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and then all the kids, you know, me, for example, I would draw the tickets and just get involved with stuff that they needed help with. So it was it was fun, fun times to be. So you mentioned um, that you ended up moving to a much bigger city when you were about in the ninth or 10th grade, the ninth or 10th standard. And it was a hard transition. Can you tell me a bit about that? Yeah. So that particular transition, I moved from Jaipur in Rajasthan, which is a big enough town, but I think still not very modern, like more traditional to Gurgaon, which was the more up and coming suburb of New Delhi. Um, So much more modern. And the age that I moved in was also, I was in eighth grade. So I think it was a very delicate age to make that move. Um, I think prior to that, any move that we'd had or any change we'd had in different cities, I at least don't remember having any difficulty in kind of settling in, finding friends and kind of just, um, you know, being in the flow and living life, you know, as a child. But that particular transition was difficult for me because of the age I was in. I think just getting into the teenage years and kind of maybe becoming a little bit more shy of approaching people. And then B, I think, yeah, it was a very different set of people that I met, specifically the first week, for example, I remember when I went to school, I still did not have school uniform. And, uh, you know, growing up in India, you, you just had to wear school uniform. And um, we moved, I think, in the middle of the school year or a month after the school had started. And we were still in the process of moving. And I started school, but we hadn't had the time to buy our uniforms. So the first few days, I just wore regular clothes. And the first day I walked into the class, I just got the looks that I didn't belong, that I was just in the wrong place. And again, as a girl growing up in India back in the day, I would look at the girls and think about, oh, I just shouldn't just go to a girl and make a friend, like find someone that I could sit with. But the girls in the class were actually, a few of them were really obnoxious and just gave me the look that don't even come here. And (laughs) 
I just couldn't find anyone that I could befriend. And it almost was like there was a, like there was a group of girls in the class who were kind of the leaders, you know, self-selected appointed leaders. And then they would set the tone of who you can make friends with or not. So even the ones that wanted to be friends would just look, you know, kind of meekly and give me the look that we want to talk to you, but we're really not going to talk to you until, you know, the, the other group talks to you type of thing. Mm-hmm. So I had never, I had never experienced that. And so it was a little shocking for me. I think over time it, it became fine. I did find a few friends, but the first few weeks were really difficult. Yeah, I can imagine. It seems like the same school kid dynamic exists in any big school. It doesn't matter what country. People are always catty at that age. Okay, so then tell me a bit about your later years. Like you went to university and then you mentioned in, in your write-up that you wanted to go to med school because that's what's expected of everybody in India. <laughs> but then things didn't quite work out the way that you had hoped. So um, I think the one thing that I can now say about myself in hindsight, and I wish I could change that. Not not that I regret it, but maybe I would change it if I could go back in time, is that I don't think I was ever planful about what I wanted to do. Um, and a lot of people said that to me when I was growing up, that think about what you want to do. And, you know, I, I, I don't think I really had the answer to that question because I don't think I ever was attracted to anything that was so powerful that I would say that, wow, that's one thing that I would want to do. I just thought everything was interesting. You know, if someone said to me, do you want to be a teacher? I would say, yeah, or a doctor. I would say, yeah, just because I could see something interesting in every profession and didn't really think that there was a line to take. Um, But that said, my dad was very keen on all of his children, which was three of us, me and my older brother and sister, to take up a profession that really would not rely on others, uh, meaning that even if we would have jobs, that eventually we could set our own practice. That was his life's learning in doing a job his entire life that I don't think he, he liked it, but I don't think he would have done that had he had more options in life, you know, growing up. Um, So he always said to us that, Beta, no matter what you do, do something that you can one day, if you don't like your job, you can quit it and just figure it out. You know, and that means you could choose to be a doctor, a lawyer, an accountant, just, just some profession that would allow you to call it quits and set up your own thing. So I did do an internship um, sort of job with the, with a company that was related to computers, like an IT engineering kind of job. Um, but it didn't really suit me. I did that for six months and I found it really boring actually to do the programming day in and day out. So I quit that and and then I decided to be home with my parents and practice a law. So I just went to, you know, a known civil lawyer in our town who my dad knew and, you know, practice under him like an apprentice for about six months or eight months, I would say. And that was also probably the most depressing time of my life. (laughs) Like we we have a very small courthouse in the town that I live in. And within that, there were the senior lawyers, which the person that I worked with was a very senior lawyer and an accomplished lawyer in my town, had like really small, dirty, dingy rooms that they would work from. 
But I think the thing that depressed me the most, um, and I'm using the word depressed quite liberally, but the thing that made me unhappy, I should say the most, was the fact that I was helping him out on civil cases. And in the six to eight months that I was there, not one case was ever decided. Like Mm -hmm. every day they would get adjournments after adjournments. You know, I remember once meeting a very poor man who'd traveled all the way from a village, you know, in taking a bus and, you know, other types of public transportation and was actually there because his son had filed a lawsuit against him and I think his brother because of some property dispute. And I just remember this man was so sad that his son had done it. So I just went back home. I think it wasn't that night, but maybe a few nights later and had a conversation with my dad about how this wasn't the thing for me that I just couldn't see that justice wouldn't be delivered to people um, and that this man had been coming to the court for years. Like it wasn't even like his first year. You know what I mean? Yeah. And we we couldn't see that justice being delivered even Mm. the next year or the following. And he was very old. Um, he said to me when I met him that, you know, I might not even come here next year because maybe I'm not on this earth. Like maybe yeah. I just die. And so, yeah, I, I, you know, I think um, it was uh, an insight, insightful moment for for me to learn from that experience that this wasn't what I was cut out for, that I can't deal with, you know, that kind of emotion and if I had to do it every day, even if as a judge, when I'm deciding a case or adjourning a case or as a lawyer, then I just don't, I won't do any service to my clients mm-hmm. or, or to myself. Yeah. That's what I've heard a lot about law in any country. It's just the repetition of everything really brings people down. So, yeah. <laughs> yeah. So you mentioned, you know, when you were growing up, you weren't quite aware of like your South Asian identity because you're, you know, like one of many Indians and that was the entire existence. And then although some politicians may have brought it up here and there, the conversations about caste and justice and gender rights and all of those things didn't necessarily make it into your day-to-day conversation growing up. Did you start to think about those things more in that time that you were working as a lawyer? Um, Yes. I think the first time it hit me that I belonged to a particular caste was actually when my parents moved to the small town, um, you know, which is Rotak in Haryana, which is where most of my caste lives in. And, you know, in that particular town, I felt that there was segregation or talk about, you know, like people were classified as jats or non-jats. So it was very clear to me that I was a jat. And, uh, you know, people around me were jots. And I still didn't know, I think, back then what it meant. But I just knew that most jats around me spoke a different language, which was, you know, just a take on Hindi, Haryanvi, or, you know, jatu, you can call it. And that, you know, reputation-wise, most jats are vocally aggressive, at least, if not physically aggressive. And probably they think they're stronger than other people, um, mm-hmm. you know, than other castes. So that, that I realized the first time that that was my lineage when we moved to this town and, um, you know, kind of everyone around me took pride in the fact that they were all jobs and they were non-jobs in the area that weren't necessarily, you know, the same in their eyes. 
other than that, I, I do think when I was growing up, there was, you know, I just grew up in a time when India as a country just went through a lot of turmoil. And, you know, when I was, I think in my 10th grade, there was a huge uh, riot, you know, all around India called the Mandal Commission riots. And essentially people were fighting. So the castes that are not treated well in India back in the day, and I should say still today, this scheduled caste and scheduled tribe, SCST, you call them for short, right. um, and other backward classes, they were all fighting for, um, you know, getting themselves into the system and getting a certain um, number of um, reservations, whether it's entrance into colleges or other professions. And when that bill was passed, I think there was a lot of rights around and I just remember our schools closed down for about a week and there was so much destruction and I just couldn't make sense of it and you know for me it was it was just something that I couldn't wrap my head around and I didn't understand why people were fighting so much and um, uh, you know at least growing up I thought that people have the every person has the right to education and every person has the right to do a job but I I really could not understand why SCSTs were treated the way they were and why they were fighting for this so badly and why they would destroy properties, they meaning both sides, not necessarily one or the other. Right. Um, but yeah, that, that was definitely something that I was aware of growing up. Mm-hmm. And do you think your time in law school kind of changed your views or gave you a different lens as to why it happens or what can be done to help resolve it? So... So yes and no, yes in that, you know, just growing up and kind of getting more mature did give me a perspective of why those things happen. But knowing that it wasn't necessarily because I went to law school that I learned about that or we did have active discussions about that. It was more that I started to understand what that meant and why that was going on. My view was driven by the people around me. So if my dad and mom would say something or if you know, you know, I would hear them talking to people around about something. Then my view was just formed by people around me. I wasn't necessarily reading or researching. I don't even think Google was a thing or we even had computers. Um, but that's the thing, like my sources of information were my parents or what I heard from the news. My views, I would say, changed more when I moved from India to America. I, I would say that 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 is probably more significant than, for example, me going to law school and then discovering another view. Mm-hmm. Can you tell me <laughs> a bit more about that? Like, how did moving to the States change your views of social justice or the caste system or the different types of discrimination in Indian society? Yeah, so I think for me, when I moved outside of India for the first time, I think for the first time, I realized that the caste system is only a thing in India, right? It, doesn't exist in other countries and granted that in other countries also there'll be divisions you know based on color or you know based on something else but really the way we have the caste system in India it's a wrong way like if you think about it how can you define someone from their birth like where they were born and what family they were born so I had never even reflected on that until I moved to another country so it could have been i could have moved to any other place in the world and maybe it would have occurred to me then. But um, 
I think it was very obvious for me when I moved out and I got this perspective that, wow, are we the only country in the world that actually has this, um, you know, caste system that really does not make any sense? Um, you know, I'm, I'm sure for some folks it still does. And they would say that it has origins in ancient India and whatnot. And it's based on people's profession. And they used to do, you know, different types of jobs back in the day, which is how they defined who would be a Brahmin versus who would be a Kshatriya versus who would be a scheduled caste, scheduled tribe. But Mm -hmm. really, you know, now in the time that we live in today, it really does not translate or make sense. So for me, I think uh, that view changed when I moved out of the country and thought about it from the perspective of the world that we live in and that everyone should be and is born equal, no matter where they're born. Uh, and everyone has the right to choose their own profession. It shouldn't be guided by the caste they belong to. Um, and of course, right to education and everything else as well. Mm, yeah. <laughs> yeah, every, every country has its own arbitrary social class system. So India solidified it in law for many, many years. Saki exists to end domestic and sexual violence against South Asian women. Although domestic violence has long been a silent subject in the community, two in five South Asian immigrant women in the U.S. are survivors. In its 30 years, Saki has united survivors, communities, and institutions to create powerful and sustainable change. Saki offers a range of services for the community. For urgent support, call their helpline at 212-868-6741, and to learn more, visit their website at sakhi.org, or follow them on Twitter at sakhinyc. Okay, so tell me, can you tell me a bit about, I guess, give me an overview of your profession. Like, what led you back and forth between Los Angeles, India, Philadelphia? Yeah, so um, I was saying earlier about the my kind of leaving, considering to leave my law practice and degree. And I think that was a juncture in life where I had to decide what I wanted to do. And I think I had two options. When I could get married, um, I was at the age where I could potentially and then maybe just could have decided to be a housewife or could have decided to choose a profession, a more, I would say, a regular, normal profession. Um, and two, I could have done an MBA degree. I think that was the only thing that I could have done in terms of advanced degrees after doing my law degree. And it wasn't a thing again back in the day in India where people would do law and then go and do an MBA. Um, because MBA would be something that people typically do as soon as they graduate, you know, after their three-year um, degree. Um, um, but that was my my way out to get out of the law profession and do something different. And so, so I did that. I did my MBA from Pune, which was closer to Goa and Mumbai. Um, and so that's a different city. I had a very different experience. And um, specialized in marketing and the school that I went to had a good placement record which meant a lot meaning that companies would come to the school and pick up students um, you know for jobs directly so for me that meant that I my job was secured when I got admission and um, I got hired by a company called ITC it is a big company in India they sell a lot of different they have a lot of different verticals including clothing you know cigarettes, food products, um, a lot of a lot of different things. So anyhow, long story short, I went to work with 
their clothing, their apparel business. So essentially what I got to do was to do a lot of marketing and PR for the brand and um, helped with their store design. We had a fashion event every year. So did a lot of fun stuff, a lot of fashion stuff. I enjoyed that stint, you know, for about two years. And that's when I decided to get married to my husband and moved to the U.S., lived in L.A., moved back. Um, and that's when I joined my current employer, which is uh, GSK uh, or GlaxoSmithKline. Mm-hmm. And back in India, I joined them for, you know, again, marketing and brand management and worked on some of their new and upcoming innovative brands. Um, but then came across this opportunity uh, in GSK where we take employees from the company and send them to work with nonprofit partners around the world um, for six months, uh, three or six months. And, you, you know, the employees are really offering their skills and talent for full time to the nonprofit partner mm-hmm. um, to, to address a particular challenge or a particular need. Mm-hmm. So I did so, that assignment, went from New Delhi to, you did meet Clement <laughs> during yeah, that actually, time. Let's say, yeah, the reason, the reason we got connected actually is because Clement was actually, um, he was at UNICEF. That was his GSK Pulse post. And I was a project manager mm-hmm. in the country office in Burundi. So Clément and I have known each other for quite a couple of years because I used to work in London after that. And then we met many times and he recommended I reach out to you. Yeah. So, yeah. Yeah. Clément and I have been on the same team for a while now. Yeah. Um, so yeah, I'm grateful so, that he connected us. <laughs> yeah. It's totally random. Um, so tell me about your, your posting with the Pulse initiative. Yeah, so I went from New Delhi to Mumbai uh, to serve a nonprofit partner called AmeriCares, and they are an American organization, but had set a base in India. They had a warehouse, or still have a warehouse, close to Mumbai, and uh, you know their mission is to uh, help you know in times of disaster. So they would provide either direct medicine or other products you know, that would help people when any disaster happens, you know, hurricanes and whatnot. Um, so they have these big warehouses uh, around the world that would, they were from where they would send these supplies. They also send doctors, nurses, and other people, volunteers on missions when anytime disaster strikes in any country. So my job with the, my pulse assignment with the nonprofit partner for the three months I was with them was really to help them with fundraising and help with some visibility and branding in India because they were really not known. Um, They had been in India for about three years at the time I joined them. And their biggest challenge was that they were still being funded from their parent organization in, in the US and were not getting funding from local organizations in India. So long story short, it was an awesome experience for me. I learned so much. I built confidence. Uh, I felt like I had the potential of great ideas and that I could deliver them. And for the AmeriCares team, they grew from a three-member team to like, I I think a 15-member team. They hired staff, they changed the office location, they expanded programming. That's great. So uh, you, you mentioned that, you know, that experience kind of led to your, what you called your third career. The volunteerism (laughs) has become like a lasting part of what you do. Yes. Yes, it did. So yeah, I, um, 
I came back from my non-profit assignment to my day job at GSK as a brand manager and felt like I was having difficulty understanding why I was doing what I was doing. (laughs) Um, So it wasn't so much about enjoying the day-to-day. I think any given day, I like to check off to-do lists. I like to see things come to life. So in my brand management job, I still got to see product labels that I had, you know, helped with or the creative team and I had worked with or commercials and so on and so forth. But really, I think what I was looking for was the purpose behind doing things. And Mm -hmm. I equally felt quite grateful and almost indebted to the organization that had led me to that opportunity. So I really didn't want to leave it. You know, in other words, I wanted to stay with them and see if I could find an opportunity within the company to do something more. And um, it just so happened that the team that works on deploying these volunteers, you know, people like me and since them had started to expand. It was the first year that I took, you know, went to do an assignment was the first year that the team had come into being in GSK and they were looking to expand their team to send more and more volunteers and expand their capacities. So I applied to that job. Um, You know, they were looking for folks who had marketing and communications background. So it worked out for me. Um, Yeah. And that's when I decided to move from India to Philadelphia to actually work with the team that had supported Mm -hmm. me to go on this life changing mission that I felt like I could be a part of that team that could send a hundred people and change their lives. And, Mm -hmm. you know, that mission has um, been something that I've been working with for the last eight years I've been here. And, And more recently, my, so I've changed different jobs in the team, staying in the same team, uh, you know, obviously have helped with all of the pulse operations, you know, and um, kind of led communications for the program, whether it's internal or external and the impact um, that we report outside to the community and have really enjoyed that. Over the years, we've grown our programming. So from pulse, we've taken it to other different programs, volunteering programs in GSK and I've led that work um, to expand opportunities like Pulse to other employees, but not necessarily Pulse, like shorter term opportunities. You know, maybe it's over four weeks or maybe it's over a day. And then more recently, I think just two weeks ago, I was actually appointed to lead the team. So now I lead um, all of GSK's volunteering programs. I think this moment does feel like a full circle from, you know, being being the first volunteer to be deployed from my company to Mm -hmm. do an assignment and then to be the person who has the privilege to lead the team that's going to deploy volunteers year after year. It just feels like, yeah, life has come a full circle. (laughs) Yeah, no, it's nice when it comes out to be a full circle. I feel like my full circles tend to be very jagged edges that lead up to a circle. But eventually when you zoom out, (laughs) you can see that it is indeed a circle. Yeah. So you talked to, you talked about earlier how your dad had some kind of he had some advice for his kids and what they should do for their profession. So thinking back on your moves between India and the United States, thinking about how like you came full circle now with this work that you've mm-hmm. done, what advice would you impart on your kids who are now growing up in the Philadelphia suburbs? So so I have a six year old boy and a four year old girl. So mm-hmm. Needless to say, they are little right now, and um, you know we aren't necessarily thinking about their careers. But 
if there was one lesson that I would draw out of my life and what I have experienced is that I have looked for my happiness, meaning if I've been unhappy doing something, I've decided to leave it, even though that might be the right thing to do in other people's eyes. And then I've chosen to take paths that might not be public approved. <laughs> yeah, it's very un-Indian so, grace. It's usually do whatever gives you respect, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> even if it makes you miserable. Yeah. So I think if I were to give them advice, I would say when making a decision in your life about what you want to do, whether it's your career or your personal life, always put yourself first and think about what gives you happiness and joy. Mm -hmm. And even though, you know, temporarily, whether because of immaturity or younger age, you might not be able to know what will give you happiness in the future. Even though temporarily it might feel like it's the right thing to do, that you should just go with what you feel is right. And, you know, in a lot of cases, not even listen to your parents or, <laughs> or you know, your closest friends. Just listen to yourself and mm -hmm. follow your path is what I would say. Mm. Um, and, and I think generally, even outside of my career, I would say a lot of times when I struggle with, you know, the day-to-day -day, um, that, I always just pause and listen to my heart and say, okay, well, everything else is telling me I should do this, but my heart is really telling me I should do this. I've always followed what my heart tells me. Thanks so much for telling us your story, Manu. And thank you to our listeners. Join us next time on Desi Women Diaspora, a podcast about South Asian women who grew up around the world. This episode of Thaisi Women Diaspora was written, produced, and recorded by Mala Kumar, with editing by Kiran Kumar. Our music was written and recorded by Joseph McDade. Find him on Patreon at patreon.com slash josephmcdade. And of course, special thanks to our interview guest, Manu Juneja. <laughs>